Welcome to episode 84 of the Sleeper in the Bust podcast. Uh, we are back after a little bit of a hiatus uh, because of the holidays and because, frankly, nothing happened in baseball uh, of much substance, really. Uh, Eno, how's it going, bud? It's good. It's uh, it's cold here. It's uh, maybe only about 62. Yeah, I'm actually about half of that. It's in the upper 30s here in Orlando today. Uh, we are at the very bottom of that what are they calling it, the polar vortex, and all that cold air got pushed down, so it actually hit 32 last night. And for Orlando, that's if everybody freaks out. I was walking around in jeans and a, and a hoodie, and everybody else looked like they were uh, reenacting Empire Strikes Back around here. But that, that's just the way it is in Florida. Where's my tauntaun? Oh, it's ridiculous. I have friends that are complete wimps about it, and I love this weather. I, 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 my windows are open right now. Because I'm the only person in my house. Once my family comes home, that'll change. But I love this weather. So I feel really badly for for Chicago right oh, now. Oh, dude, yeah. Did you see Kevin Goldstein's uh, vine yesterday? Yeah, that yeah. was awesome. Throwing the hot water out and then it just evaporating. We, we've seen videos of that from Siberia, you know, the, the, on YouTube from all the the Russian crazy stuff that happens. But yeah, I've been on a business trip uh, in North Dakota where it's been like that, and it is not fun. I don't want to live up there. I don't mind visiting that kind of stuff, but that's a little extreme. But anyhow, uh, we'll be back on a regular recording schedule now that it is now that the college football season is, season is over. Uh, that it officially <laughs> kicks off baseball uh, season for me, at least that's how my calendar functions. So we'll be recording twice a week. We'll be doing two teams a week. And by the time we get to just about the well, end of spring training, right? We four teams a week. Four I'm teams. Sorry, a week. I'm sorry, four teams a week, which two will get us. Yeah, two teams per podcast, four teams a week, which will get us through all 30 teams in seven and a half episodes. If I'm doing my math right, 14 and a half. I, you can tell it's been a, a weird day. Uh, maybe it's all the <laughs> maybe it's all the Hall of Fame ranting. I, just need that stuff to be over with. I'm just so annoyed at that whole process right now. Uh, so we'll be doing that, uh, and we'll get that. And the first two teams we'll be talking about uh, today are your Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim and your Oakland Athletics. So we're going to stay on your coast and talk about those guys. But let's jump into it. First guy, uh, David Freese is the new guy on the scene uh, coming over to Anaheim. What are your thoughts about Freese this year? Well, you know, <clears throat> I actually have him in a, in a really deep league that, 20-team league that you used to be in. And um, I was pretty close to cutting him after uh, the season he had, even in a 20-teamer, just because he was – if he'd stayed on the Cardinals, he might have only hit against lefties. And, he, I mean, it's, it's a weekly lineup league, but just in general to hold a guy that has sort of mediocre power and uh, no speed and will only hit against lefties, that's kind of hard to do in any league. Um, so I think – in in that way, uh, this trade I think actually uh, makes him more valuable. I mean, you know, there's some other things that maybe we'll talk about that make him less valuable. But I think just I believe the Angels want him as a as a full time player, and so now we can start to talk about him as a full time player again, which is already a boost in value. 
Yeah, that's definitely going to help his case out. You know, last year, never really seemed to get things right. I know some health issues were going on. You saw some growth in 2011 and 2012. Power jumped up, especially the home run to fly ball rate was anywhere from 15 to 20%. And then last year, it dipped down to 10. Uh, so sure, 10 is league average, but it's too early for a guy for him to be falling down from the upper teens to 10% like that. I actually like him a little bit as a, as a regression, uh, you know, bounce back candidate. So if you're into uh, regression drafting, going after guys coming off bad years, I think Freeze qualifies is that and I still think he's a, a, a lower half option in mixed leagues but I think he's somebody that is better than he was last year maybe not quite what he was in 2012 or the postseason but I, th- I think the, the the real freeze is somewhere in between that yeah I mean there is that that crazy moment that that kind of I think made him overvalued for a while but you know I, I wonder I was kind of surprised that the Cardinals uh, platoon him so quickly. Uh, if you look at his platoon splits uh, over his whole career, um, he's still above average against lefties. I mean, he has a he's a 114 WRC plus against lefties. It's not that doesn't scream platoon to me. So um, I don't I don't know. Maybe they jumped the gun on that one. Maybe it was just a personnel thing. They just saw that they had Matt Carpenter and they could try to get Wong in there and try to figure it out that way. But um, I, I really do think he's going to play every day. I agree. I think there's some bounce back ability in his power. Um, and, uh, he's proven that he can, that he has a sort of line drive stroke. It's a little bit ground ball heavy, but that I think he's a proven high BABIP guy. So, um, you know, I'd take a, a nice batting average and, you know, 15, uh, 15 to 20. I mean, he's Tony can hit 20, but I, I if I, if I pencil him in for basically 280 and 15 homers, um, that I'd feel comfortable about that. Um, and, and if he, if he was actually healthy for a full season, decent runs in RBI, we won't, we don't know exactly how that lineup's going to fare, but, um, you know, I th- I'd see some bounce back ability in the rest of the lineup. So, you know, I, I think he's decent. I, you know, mixed league gets a little bit tough, but mixed league corner infield. Sure. I think, um, right there is, is sort of where you're seeing him, uh, sort of, Back in top fifteen type third baseman. Yeah, I, I think there's absolutely some upside in that in that two eighty fifteen home run line. I think you know maybe seventeen eighteen. So th- there's some upside uh, with him going on. Their closer situation. This is one that completely perplexes me. Yes, it's Ernesto Frieri, and there are you know as I did his his Fangraphs Plus write up. There is the good, the bad, and the ugly with him. I mean, the good is the strikeout rate is still awesome. You look at the it, just everything there, low contact. It's it just some of the best numbers of all relievers. And even one of the other things that kind of his walk rate is still ugly, but it's at least improved each of the past five seasons. And people may not have noticed it, but he only blew four saves last year, 37 of 41. The problem is when he blows him, he blows him in grand style. He you know, gives up three plus earned runs, five runs here, um, and they've added some depth. You know, they've got Joe Smith over there in the bullpen now. Dane Delarosa looked good last year, so there are other options. I still think Freire is clear cut favorite here, but he is far from a sure thing because his numbers are kind of all over the place. Yeah, and I think I think you know it actually surprises me to hear that that he only blew four saves um, because I remember that they were kind of all within you know two weeks of each other or a month, and uh, I think that's why De La Rosa had some saves and was on the you know on the cusp of maybe taking the job. I definitely claimed him in some deeper leagues last year, um, and Dane De La Rosa just another great uh, you know uh, raise find I, I believe. 
Yeah, he was, uh, he was actually a former real estate agent and, uh, got into it. Yeah, he was doing real estate and, and he started getting into real estate right when the real estate bubble burst. So he's like, ah, let me go back and try pitching. And as somebody who watched him pitch for the Rays and watching him last year pitching for the Angels, he looks different. He's changed his arm slot a little bit, but one of the things he's able to do is he really stays on top of the ball. So a lot of people may say, oh, you know, low home run, the fly ball rate, and that's going to regress, but that's something he's always been able to do. He had problems here in Tampa Bay when he would get under the ball a little bit. He's a big guy, six eight. he's all legs, but sometimes he would get underneath the ball and leave it up. Uh, but I, when I watched him pitch for the Angels, I saw a different arm slot in him really staying on top of the ball to be able to drive it down. Uh, and that's what I like about it. With Frieri, it, it goes a little bit all over the place. So he had 67 outings last year. 50 of them were scoreless. Uh, but he had a pretty big jump in, in the first half. He had a, you know, his slash line was 178, 282, 308. Second half, 266, 333, 477. A lot of those home runs creeped up in the second half, and it wasn't because of any home run, the fly ball escalation. He's just an extreme fly ball guy, and just those when it that's when it happened. But if you look over the seasons, his home run, the fly ball rate is rather static. It's just one of those things you have to live with with him is he's going to give up some home runs. You just have to hope it's not when guys are on base. Yeah, you kind of hope that, you know, Pitching in Petco and in, in Anaheim would uh, would help him a little bit in that front, um, but it hasn't quite yet. And you're right; it's just a total extreme fly ball guy. He's he pitches up in the zone to get those strikeouts, uh, and those you know most of the time that that treats him well. You know, one of the nice things about the fastball is not only does it go 94 or so, but he has a lot of deception in the in the delivery. Um, so I wonder if just certain guys um, who've seen him more often uh, are more likely to hit home runs off him. Um, you know the deception doesn't work as well with them. I mean, he does. He throws a lot of fastballs. Yes. Um, so it's it's all about that fastball. And if maybe maybe if some of that's guile, um, <clears throat> maybe then sometimes it, it you know he loses uh, he loses that guile or or something about how he's thrown it that day makes him uh, more susceptible to homers. But you know if he can just face those homers out a little better this year, um, I, I certainly think that he'll he'll um, he'll be the closer for most of the year. I mean, the the one guy, Daniel LaRosa, that is really interesting that you mentioned his arm slot because I think that was a big deal for uh, Danny Farquhar in, in Seattle. Um, Love that guy. He Well, he used to kind of submarine or kind of sidearm it a little bit, mm-hmm. and um, and he was only like 90, you know, 89, 90. And, um, and then he just – they put him over the top, and he went up to 94, and he was a closer. So I, I feel like – that's got to be some of what's going on in De La Rosa. You see the, the jump in velocity in his numbers. When you get over the top, you, I think you use your your sort of levers better. You use your your length better. So they're both kind of tall guys um, that recently changed their arm slot and that really helped a lot. So I think Dan De La Rosa is a, a decent handcuff. I mean, he got put into the big situations last year. He was even when he wasn't uh, the closer at the end of the year. Uh, was watching a lot of games where he was the, uh, the setup man. So. Uh, I know Joe Smith is a is a is a <clears throat> you know a, a steady Eddie, um, but the one thing is that you know I you know um, Jack Moore did some some work for Fangrass Plus last year and that that'll be coming out soon. But um, uh, what he what he found was one of the few things that's correlated with closer changes is uh, velocity and strikeout rate, mm-hmm. and either of those things uh, favor Joe Smith. I mean he throws eighty nine and he strikes out you know, just about league average. So 
I feel like if there's an impetus for change, it'll most likely go in Dane De La Rosa's direction, and it'll most likely be because Dane De La Rosa has a better walk rate and, you know, isn't blowing up and isn't giving up homers like Freire. So uh, I think Dane De La Rosa is, is the handcuff. Yeah, I agree. The, the one thing, the other point I wanted to mention is I mentioned you know, how his slugging percentage in the first half was 308, then with the 477 in the second half. You know, and talking with guys that live out there, and you know, anybody who lives in that around that area knows that the air is just heavier earlier in the season uh, there, and then in summer once it heats up, the ball does tend to travel more. So that, I think that plays against Freire as well. You know, and looking at him, how about this? You know, a guy that I am extremely, you know pessimistic for in 2014, would you take Freire over Jonathan Papelbon? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, <clears throat> I would hope that uh, both my, both these selections are pretty late. And, um, you know, if it was, I mean, I guess the later it gets, the more likely I might go with Papelbon just because um, I feel like the Phillies might stick with him longer to either get trade value out of him or, or, or show everybody that they, they should have spent $50 million on him. Um, but, um, so I, if it was like really lo- like late rounds then maybe it would get closer, but I, I've seen Papelbon go way before Freire. And so that makes the decision really easy. Yeah. I mean, to me, when Papelbon, I mean, we'll definitely get into him when we get to the Phillies, but there's a lot of red flags there in his game. And, you know, at least with Freire, he's still getting a lot of strikeouts with Papelbon that's disappearing. So if we're talking about two guys that are prone to get with higher ERAs as, as closers. I'm going to go with the guy that's at least going to get strikeouts. The other thing in the bullpen of note is Mark Mulder is, is signing with the Angels. Uh, don't know how that story is going to work out, but honestly, as I told you off air, after watching Scott Casimir come back from working on the set of 90210, the TV show, to getting a multi-year million-dollar contract, I'm not ready to rule out anything in baseball these days. I just think it's a, it's a neat story for him to come back after what five, six years out of the out of the game on the field, and I think it's a loss in the studio because I loved his work at ESPN. He, I thought he was fantastic. Yeah, that's true. He was he was one of the better guys over there in the studio, and uh, you know I. I think he'll be a reliever, so it'll be, you know, a much further, uh, a longer path to the Casimir type, you know, uh, return to glory. Um, but, uh, you never know. I mean, he, it's a good park for him. And the thing that's really funny though is that, uh, apparently he's been working with this guy, Paco Rodriguez. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and he's, and he claims that Paco's like, you know, given him, shown in the light when it comes to mechanics. But a lot of people think that Paco Rodriguez's mechanics are terrible. Oh, they're, they're, it's fun to watch, but there's no way I would ever coach a kid to do it. With Mulder, what's he got to lose? But I, I would never say, hey, hey, son, watch this guy pitch. I want you to look just like that. <laughs> <laughs> but it is, it looks, it, it's really painful to watch a delivery. But uh, let's go behind the dish and look at the catching situation with Anaheim. We have Chris Iannetta coming back, and we have Hank Conger uh, in that situation. How do you see that playing out? You know, that's really interesting. Uh, I mean, it's the last year of Ionetta's uh, contract, and so that might play into it. I, it seems like there's some availability um, here because there were some rumors earlier in the season, in the offseason, that the Blue Jays uh, would acquire one of these catchers. Um, and, uh, and so there is some, um, there's some, you know, movement going on. But when I was in the clubhouse with these guys, I didn't sense it, you know. Uh, Hank, I would talk to them sometimes, and Hank would be sitting right next to Yanetta, and he'd sort of look over at Yanetta and say, like, you know, you know, what, you know, what do you think? Like, he he defers to the veteran, um, and so it really seems like 
Ionet is still in the first seat. But if you watch, you know, look at Conger's plate appearances and sort of read the tea leaves, I think, and, and, and know that his, he's under team control for longer and sort of see some of the upside in his numbers, I think, you know, we may see a year where they almost have equal plate appearances this year. Yeah, I mean, the thing with what I noticed with Conger last year is I was very impressed. He looked better defensively. Now, he usually gets a, a bad rap about how, how things have been with him and uh, is defensively. But I thought in the games I watched that he looked better behind the plate. He threw better. He was receiving pitches better. So that impressed me uh, to see how that – so I, he may get some more playing time. But offensively, it's just really not playing out. There's really not much there. Uh, even with the increased playing time he got last year, there just wasn't a lot there. Uh, if you look at in terms of runs above average and how they're pitch framing, Conger's the better of the two. If you look at his overall, I'm looking at the, the latest data that Harry Pavlidis has put out, and Conger ranks right up. He's in the top 20. He's not too far behind Martin Maldonado, a guy I love, uh, but he's not too far there. I net as well down the list. So I think – I'll, I'll tilt towards Conger, but I don't know if there's really much fantasy upside unless uh, some minimal help for the pitching staff with Conger getting more time behind the dish. Yeah, I I, I struggle to be um, restrained about. I mean, Conger is like uh, I wouldn't call him a friend yet, but he's you know he's gonna he'd probably be there after this year because I always uh, you know find him in the clubhouse and we always talk even if it doesn't turn into pieces. And what I've gathered from him is that, you know, I do think they've been a little tough on him defensively. And I don't know if that means that people thought he was bad, he was worse than he was because, uh, you know, the sort of Mike Sosha factor. Um, and, you know, he used to say, I remember Mike Sosha said to, to me, the first uh, winter meetings I went to, um, I said something like, you know, can Hank Conger catch? I asked him and he said, no, oh, Hank Conger thinks he can catch. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, damn. Um, so I, he's, he's tough on these guys. And, but I think that, you know, he's, he's been in that system and he's been, you know, their future catcher for four or five years now. It's been a long time. And the, the stuff that he told me that they do in the minors to, to prepare and the, the, the kind of stuff that he thinks about defensively and the, in the interest that he took in the stuff I was talking about framing with him and, and, and blocking and the different types of things. I think that he takes the defense very seriously. I think it is probably um, probably about the time where he'll be a better defensive catcher. He'll be a better framer. Uh, and then, you know, I still see some upside there. I mean, we, we're only talking about 508 career plate appearances. So it's right. not like we really know who he is. And if you look at his minor league numbers, he's always had uh, better walk rates down there. And, you know, the power has been sort of up and down. But um, And he's had way better contact rates in the minors. So, you know, I'm I'm not going to write him off completely uh, offensively. I think you know, with an average strikeout rate um, and average power, um, you know, he could hit for league average, which <laughs> is like 255 these days. But you know, a, a catcher who can hit 255 and hit 15 homers that that puts him right in a sort of bin with about 80 other catchers. Here's one thing I'll, I'll put him with: so he's 25, he's turning 26 this year during uh, during the year. Jason Castro was 25 in 2012, uh, was obviously coming back off missing 2011 with that knee injury, but his numbers were rather pedestrian and then blew up last year. 
It just, you know, look, and, and so I see, I see there's some growth opportunity for Conger. I'm not ready to write him off by any means because catchers definitely take longer to develop because of all the other responsibilities they have. And I think last year he made those strides defensively to earn that playing time because as you said, you know, Sosha has been on his butt about it. So I, I thought he made that, which should, which should begat some more offensive opportunities. Not that I see a Jason Castro growth coming in, in Hank Conger, but I think he's definitely better than what he's displayed so far. Yeah, and if there is um, some growth from him, I actually sort of think of it as maybe the old Castro. Like, I think he could be the old Castro where he hits for a good average and, you know, 10 to 12 homers. So I, I think that the growth for him is a little bit more, you know, line drives and, uh, you know, powerful line drives and a nice batting average, nice BABIP. I think that is a possibility for him more, a little bit more than what actually happened with Castro in the end. Sure. Uh, the other move... They added Raul Labanez as a DH, and and this is one of the most perplexing careers to try to look at. I mean, we know Labanez has been DFA'd at points in his career and has hit well at different stages. You know, and they thought he looked old and done with Philadelphia, and then he goes to the Yankees and hits with power. And then once he left Yankee Stadium and, and signed with the Mariners, everybody was like, "Why in the hell are they doing that?" Yeah, he's never going to hit for power there. And he hit for power. He hit 29 home runs, uh, his highest total since 2009. Uh, simply put, he gave up all aspects of hitting for contact and just tried to grip it and rip it and, and try to get another year in the major leagues. And he did it. His, his strikeout rate went from 15.8 to 25.8%, and he doubled his home run to fly ball ratio from four years ago. And it got him a new contract, guaranteed money. But to me, if, if you were to say, hey, over under 15 home runs for Abanias this year, I'm going to take the under. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that um, is sort of underreported in his breakout um, 2013 <laughs> breakout at 41 years young, old, <laughs> young player on the rise, um, is that uh, it was the first year in his last four that he was, uh, you know, better than average with the stick against lefties, and, and we, we saw in Philadelphia and New York. I mean, New York really, he was uh, a platoon player. And um, they reversed course of that a little bit in 2013 and let him see more lefties, and he did really well. He was 20% better than the league average against lefties, but I just don't see that happening again. I mean, his whole career he's been worse than league average against lefties, and the last four years, the last three years before last year, he was getting worse and worse. So um, I would I would expect to see him. Yeah, you know, I'll take whatever. I'll take the under on uh, 470 plate appearances from Steamer. Um, and if I'm taking the under on 470 plate appearances, that means I'm taking the under on most of the stats that come after that. It's just a, it's a strange move because other than that, I like how they have put together their roster. You know, you've got Hamilton, though, I think, should have a better year. Trout, obviously. Calhoun's going to get more playing time. You add Freeze. Uh, you, Pujols will be better because he'll actually have his base and be able to hit without feeling like he's walking on broken glass, which is what that foot issue feels like. And we talked about the improvements uh, with what we could see in Conger and how they've added their bullpen. So I, I like their overall team. That's just a strange signing to me, uh, and especially for a team when you when you have Mike Trout. Honestly, you should be doing whatever the hell you can to make this team the best as possible. And signing Will Abanez when you've got other options out there, that is, sure it may cost you a draft pick, but bringing Morales back, getting Nelson Cruz, doing something like that. I'd rather take a chance there than sign Abanez on a one-year deal. I know there's no such thing as a bad one-year deal. This may be close. Yeah, well, 
Uh, <laughs> I mean, if it, it, it I, I, here's the thing, though. I, don't, I mean, I, I'll go back to what you say. Uh, there's no such thing as a bad one-year deal because it, not because of the deal itself, but because there's no tie to the, the player. Um, so if Crone, you know, pushes him, or you know, I think it's mostly if Crone pushes him, then then uh, you'll see you'll see him go, mm-hmm. or you'll see him relegated to the very end of the bench as a pinch hit or whatever. Um, and, and you'll see Crone in the big leagues. I mean, it's all on Crone. If Crone can do something, if Crone can be in the next Trumbo, then, then Crone will be in the big leagues and they're not going to worry about what happens with Raul Ibanez. Exactly. Uh, the other, the last issue on the Angels is Jared Weaver. Uh, and we, I mentioned earlier the red flags with Papelbon and, and declining strikeout rate, declining velocity. And, uh, Mike Petriello wrote a piece over at Rotographs the other day and, and talked about some nothing of concern for Weaver showed declining velocity. The average fastball velocity was uh, around 87 and a half last year, where it was 91 even in 2010. And how his strikeout is K per nine is now below league average, and it's trended as such since 2010. So the decline in velocity is related, is directly correlated to his decline in strikeouts per nine innings. Uh, last year, obviously, had the, the freakish, the one freakish injury where he landed funny um, and, and all that, but. Where are you with Jared Weaver? Yeah, I mean, the only thing I would say is that uh, I, I definitely uh, feel the concern, and, and I think that you're actually already starting to see the the the. I think you see you can see the peak in his numbers. We're talking about a peak. 2010 looks like his peak, um, and everything's sort of falling off of that. But um, when you look at the bell curve, the only thing I would say is that if we get too uh, if we get too pessimistic about him, there is an opportunity for arbitrage in the other direction. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's the sort of thing that happens at expert drafts, and the, the higher stakes your drafts are, the more you'll see this where everyone's everyone's down on Jared Weaver. So wait a second, maybe I'll zig when everyone's zagging. Because let's say it is a bell curve, and, you, and when we're and we're going back to sort of um, in, in, in essence the young Weaver. So we're gonna we're gonna sort of return to the things that happened at the beginning of his career because he's he's at the end of his career. We all turn back to dust or whatever. So um, if you look at it, what he did uh, worse early in his career was he gave up more home runs. Um, and I think that, you know, that might have been – it might be for different reasons. He might have given up home runs because he was uh, inexperienced and didn't know what to do with his pitches. Now I think he'll give up home runs because his fastball is so bad um, that some people will just, you know, they'll guess wrong and they'll still be able to turn, turn an 86-mile-an-hour fastball out of the stadium. So I think what we'll see is we'll see a home run rate over one. Uh, maybe up to one, 1.2. Steamer says 1.3. I can believe that. Um, but, you know, I still think that he has really good command. Um, he has some interesting off-speed, off-speed stuff. And, uh, you know, I think he'll strike out more than six per nine. He'll, he'll, he'll still have a representative strikeout rate. And he's still pitching a nice stadium. So, uh, you know, if it's Steamer and it's 4.2 ERA, 1.3 whip kind of steal, the deal, that's still useful in a lot of leagues. Uh, but, it, yes, in general, I agree. I'm, I'm down on him for sure. Yeah, I mean, Weaver's always been a guy that's typically flirt. I, well, I would say, like, AL only dollar values since I, you know, with AL Tout Wars and all. I want to say he's always been, like, 18 to $22 range guy. To me, that at 15, I'm now dropping out. Yeah. Yeah, I would, I would want to get him for single digits, I think. Um, to feel like I could make some money on a, <clears throat> make some money on people getting too down on him. So I guess it always it's always about what, how you feel about him with respect to the rest of the draft room. But um, 
you know, he, he's beaten his FIP a lot, and I think a lot of that is to do with his home stadium um, helping him out. There's been some research on infield flies. He might be able to use his command to get more infield flies. Um, but, um, you know, so, he, you know, if we do a lot of research based, if we're doing a lot of projection based on his FIP and this, that sort of deal, then we might get too negative on him. But I definitely, I'm not, I don't want to pay double digits for him. I mean, there is also a thing that happens with fastballs around 86, 87, 88. You know, once you get below that, uh, the homer rate on fastballs goes up. Yes, it definitely does. And then you mentioned his home road splits. Over the last five years, home ERA 231, whip of one. Road, 377 ERA, whip of one, two. So there is a bit of a difference there um, to where he's going. And then his looking at his ADP right now, Current ADP at NFBC, Weaver is at 133. He's being taken as high as 96 and as low as 176. See, I mean, right there, like if he's in, if he's available to me at 150, you know, we're talking about, you know, double digit rounds here. We're talking about like 11th, 12th round of any, any size league. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'd start looking at how he would be on my queue, you know. He's the 31st. He's the thir- Right now he's the 31st pitcher taken in drafts. He is just behind Julio Tehran and Chris Medlin, and he's just ahead of Danny Salazar, Tony Sangrani, Hinjun okay, well, Ru, and Francisco Liriano. All right, all right. He, he'll ha- he'd have to fall below a lot of those guys. <laughs> I would take all of those guys. Exactly. <laughs> and then Andrew Kashner, <laughs> C.J. Wilson, John oh, Lester. Yeah, he, he, well, I might take him over Wilson, actually. I mean, he's 10 spots ahead of Doug Fister. And I'd take Doug oh. Fister all day long. Yeah, okay. So it's yeah. a little – the NFBC data, there's only so many drafts right now, so sometimes it gets a bit wonky. Uh, yeah. the, uh, Jared Weaver is not a top 100 pitcher. To me, he's not even a top 120 fantasy pick. Now, he's not a – to me, I don't even see him as a top 40 pitcher, let alone a top 125 player. Yeah, I guess I'm talking about if I could have him for my fifth pitcher in a mixed league or something, then – you know, I'll hop on it. Sure, yeah, because he's a low risk, as you as you pointed out earlier. He still doesn't walk many guys, and, and when he does get up his home runs, it be, because of the lower walks, tends not to be as many guys on base, so he doesn't burn you as much. Um, let's uh, shift attention up the uh, Interstate 5 and get up to your neck of the woods and talk about the Oakland Athletics. First guy is a guy that I was huge on coming into last year. I ended up getting him in just about every league that I, I played in, and he – Help me win exactly one of those leagues, and that's Josh Donaldson. Uh, what Josh Donaldson? What kind of flew under the radar? People tend to look at his overall body of work, and always we encourage that. But if you go back and look at his numbers in 2012, one of the things that stands out early in that season, he got jerked up and down, I think twice. But he didn't walk for a hundred plate appearances. A lot of people were making fun of Jeff Kepinger last year for doing the same thing. But that's exactly what Josh Donaldson did in 2012. Then got sent down to Sacramento for an extended period of time. And since he's been called back in August of 2012, Josh Donaldson is hitting 298, 377, 497. That's what his line is. Uh, and it's been the strikeout rates improving. The walk rate is, is better. He doesn't have, if you look at his career splits, you may see some big splits, but if you knock it down to when I say you know, August 1st, 2012 to present, he's good against right-handers and really good against left-handers. So he doesn't have a detrimental split. To me, this is a very solid player. 
Yeah. Uh, I mean, the, the thing that's uh, so great about it is, I mean, I, 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 I hate to fall into this, but, you know, when I talk to guys and when they, when they talk about things intentionally, when they talk about, you know, things in a way where they're like, yes, I, I saw this. And so therefore I did this. And then you see the numbers. I, that's so intoxicating to me. That's like, yes. Okay. This guy got it. He understood. He, 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 he worked on it and we're now seeing the results of that. I know that sometimes it can be still luck and there's still, you know, a high batting average on balls in play at a 333 Babbitt, you know, that can still be in there. Um, and that can, that can be helping him. But, you know, he said to me, when I got up to the big leagues, I wanted to hit. I wanted to hit so bad. I wanted to prove to everybody that I belonged. I wanted. I want. I was swinging out of my shoes on everything, and you see that. You know, his walk rate went from twelve to thirteen percent in Triple A to six percent in the majors, and that's mm-hmm. and his strikeout rate just was huge. And what you see is he gradually got back to the guy he was in the minor leagues. I mean, the 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 almost every rate that he put up last year, he he put up. That or better in the minor leagues. Correct. Yeah. And one of the things that really stands out with him, people forget he used to be a catcher. And I'm using catcher with air quotes because in talking with people that saw him down in the lower minors, he wasn't very good. In fact, there was a story. Ryan Sandberg was his minor league manager at one point. And they were getting a, this was relayed to me by somebody who was working in the low A. And he, uh, the bus was getting in late to the hotel. And I believe like the bus hit something at the hotel and Donaldson was given the driver crap and, and, uh, Sandberg stood up and read him the right act, you know, saying we're only late to this game because you, you know, you allowed two pass balls that extended the game into extra innings. We would have been here two hours ago if you learned how to catch a ball. Uh, something really got into him at, at late at night, but Donaldson has turned himself into a very good third baseman as well. Defensively, he really holds his own over in that position. And that's the old adage goes, defense gets you to the majors and off, uh, you know, offense will get you there. Defense will keep you there. And he's doing both. And I'm looking at his ADP right now. His ADP is 65. He's the fifth third baseman off the board behind Beltre, Longoria, Wright, and Zimmerman. Well, people don't believe. Uh, a lot of people don't believe, and I think there are a lot of people are looking at that Babbitt. But um, you know, he has more ground balls than fly balls. Um, you know, he has the sort of uh, batted ball mix that can that can make it work. He has, you know, he's not slow guy, so he's not a plotter third baseman. So. You know, maybe walk that back to 320 or something, but um, I'll take uh, the Oliver projected batting average, which is 285. I, I, I believe in that sort of batting average. Um, and, you know, can he hit 24 homers again? I don't really see why not. I mean, maybe he won't. Uh, both the projection systems have him not uh, getting as many plate appearances, mm-hmm. so then, you know, maybe that steps back there. But I actually I could see a step forward in rate power, uh, maybe a step back in how many times he gets to the plate and about the same amount of results. And, you know, honestly, I'd take him over Zimmerman because Zimmerman, you know, the defense is going in the wrong direction. Who knows where he'll end up? He gets hurt every year. And is he a lock to hit 280 and 25 homers? I mean, I don't think so. So I'd rather, I'd rather have him over than Zimmerman. And, you know, I, I like him a little bit better than, than some of the other people in drafts right now, I think. Yeah, I agree with everything you said there. You look, even if you break down his first and second half splits last year, strikeout rate was the exact same. Walk rate, he actually took more walks in the second half. His, his ground ball, fly ball, all that was rock solid. He's been a very consistent player because a lot of times we'll see guys with bigger first halves and second halves and whatnot, but it all 
very much lines up. The only difference was you know, a little bit, it's 60 points uh, less in slugging percentage because home run the fly ball dipped a slight bit in the second half. That's it. Uh, to me, this has been a very consistent player. I absolutely agree. I would take him over uh, Zimmerman. I, he'd still be the fourth third baseman because I can't take him over over uh, Beltre, Longoria, or Wright, but I have no problem taking him ahead of Zimmerman. Yeah, I agree. Uh, moving on, next guy, Sonny Gray, who made a nice name for himself in the postseason. I think, uh, you know, the, the second, the first start was amazing. The second start, if he would have gone off on that one, I think he would have had an incredible amount of helium uh, coming into draft season, much like Alex Cobb did this time last year. And this also applies to Michael Waka. I think one of the best things for fantasy players is that both Gray and Waka didn't do as great in their final outing of the postseason as people thought they would, because it would have been ridiculous the, the kind of helium they would have had in draft days if if you were uh, hoping to get either player at a discount. Frankly, I don't see either of these guys. I don't see Gray coming for a discount because it's a, there's too much good stuff out there. He's got the pedigree of coming from Vanderbilt. Uh, you look at he throws a lot of pitches. You've interviewed him uh, about the, his the different grips that he's used on on this curveball and slider, how it's tough to classify things. What really stands out to me, I uh, saw that in the piece uh, yesterday, that uh, they had a beyond-the-box score. It's just consistent release point. It's really tough. to. I would like to have that you Darvish Jeff with all the pitches coming at once, do that with Sonny Gray, because when you look at his, uh, the pitch FX data on Gray, everything comes out of the same spot. Makes it very tough for batters to pick him up. Yeah, I do have one worry uh, for Sonny Gray that uh, I think is a little bit underreported, but it's also easy to watch. Um, the changeup is bad. It's just, it's, it's not a good pitch. Um, and it looks almost exactly like a two seamer. And I actually asked him, I said, I said, was that a change? I said something like, was that a change up I saw? And he said, look like a two seamer. <laughs> and I, I was like, uh, yeah, yeah, that's the one. He's like, yup. <laughs> so he's got this like weird change up. It's like 88. It has a little bit of arm side, um, you know, uh, fade. Mm-hmm. That's fade, right? Yeah. Yes. And, uh, and, uh, and, you know, but it, it looks a lot like his two seamer. And so I think there's, what I want to watch is his approach against lefties. And I think that's something you can see in spring training. Um, you know, and it's something that I think that even you don't have to really be a scout to, to see. So what you need to do is just watch him against lefties and, and watch what pitches he uses. Does he, is he going to, is he going to get a, because uh, I think he can get lefties out with the big curve, the slider and the fastball and the two seamer. I think that that's enough pitches to get lefties out. Uh, because the big curves, you know, you have to use it a little differently. Use it for grounders, you know, um, as opposed to whiffs. But, you know, there's enough different pitches and enough different angles where it's not Justin Masterson, you know, where he has two pitches and, and they both break into lefties. It's a, there's a little bit more uh, nuance there. But, you know, he kept trying to throw that change up, and I think he looked really nervous on the mound against lefties to me. And so there's a little the, – the one question left for me, um, with Sonny Gray is his approach against lefties and what he does with that changeup. If he firms it up and tries to get grounders with it or if he tries to take some speed off of it. And, you know, I'm not sure that he will. I think he'll probably scrap it because, you know, by the time you get to the majors, if you, if you hadn't made it with that pitch, you know, there's not a lot of time to work on. I mean, it's spring or bust. To me, you know, when you look at, when you look at his numbers against lefties, obviously Smalls, he only threw 602 pitches to lefties last year. 226 batting average against the pitch, 622 OPS, uh, weighted on base average 282. So those are all good numbers, but two-thirds of his pitches were fastballs. He only threw 52 changeups last year, and if he is going to scrap the changeup, 
in the major leagues, you have to have some kind of third pitch. Does he add a cut fastball and start working that to both corners? Because I just can't imagine him sustaining moving forward with just using two pitches against opposite handed hitters. Yeah. <clears throat> I mean, that's, that's, that's basically what I'm saying. I mean, you know, there's, there's something there. Um, and you, you can kind of see it. He, he kind of walks around the mound a little bit more. Um, and there's a little bit more nervousness lefty on the mound. Uh, I mean, on the, at the plate. So there's some, there's, you know, I, I love him. I love the, I, and in big curveballs, sometimes you don't need a changeup. Um, but he, you know, maybe his two seamer needs to get better. Uh, maybe he needs to, you know, maybe he needs to, I don't know. I don't know. I think that he needs to, there's something there for lefties. Um, so he's a little step below like a Garrett Cole to me. I'll take Garrett Cole over Sonny Gray a million times because Garrett Cole has three plus plus pitches, maybe yes. four. And he was in, late in the season, he was starting to throw his breaking pitches more and get more strikeouts. So I, you know, Garrett Cole to me, there's almost no question for me. You know, it's just, the only question is why didn't he strike out people in the early in the season? And you have an answer for that, which is he has an organizational philosophy, which, you know, the Pirates want him to throw fastballs. So that's, that's what happened. So with, with Sonny, there's more of a question. One of the things that kind of stands out to me, what I like to look for is what do guys throw when they're behind in the count? So I, I usually, I like to take data and say, okay, they're pitching in a hitter's count. What are they throwing? Last year, if Gray was in a hitter's count, 86% fastball to lefties. He threw his changeup more than he threw his curveball to lefties. So if he's got a little confidence in his in his changeup, the hell is he doing using it more than he is curveball? So I'd like to see. That's why I like to see guys pitch backwards. You know, do things like that. But if you're falling back on that fastball that frequently when you're in hitters counts, you got to stay out of hitters counts because I don't care what you are, that's going to get punished. That is, by the way, what happened to Danny Salazar. So if you're watching for anything in the spring for Danny Salazar is, is confidence to use the slider and the changeup, um, in hitters counts and, and, and stay away from, because he, he just reared back and threw 98 and, you know, he gave up homers. We saw it. Yeah. That was, uh, I, I remember for what the, the process report, uh, the Rays blog that I write with, I did the, the preview for that, that wild card game. And I say, you know, the, the process, I, when I looked at the data for Danny Salazar, found out that he had, when he was in a 2-0 count, he had never thrown anything but a fastball all season. Not, not even a Shelby changeup. And he, and he had a really good changeup. When he, but he got a 2-0 counts, all fastballs. And then if you go back and watch that wild card game early on in that game, when he was ahead in the count, he was just blowing smoke by guys, blowing smoke by guys. Second time around, started falling behind, and they were just sitting fastball, and they made him pay and chased him from that game. So, again, I don't care how hard you throw. If you can't throw another pitch, and that's that's the next step. That's going to retard your development so you can't get higher. You know, it's, it's really interesting to put uh, Sonny Gray up against uh, Dan Straley, I was just thinking about, in the same um, rotation because they both have the same, you know, park effects. Um, and, uh, you know, Straley has none of the pedigree. Um, he came out of college. Um, nobody knew who he was. Late round pick. Didn't have any pitch other than a fastball. Um, and, you know, was sort of developing a slider. Slider turned out to be good. Uh, and then the organization taught him the changeup. And his changeup is good. I mean, it's not, it's not, you know, great, but it's 17% whiffs. 
uh, that's above average. It gets uh, 50% grounders. That's about average. So, you know, he's got a, basically an average to above average changeup with a great slider and uh, a decent uh, fastball. So I think the only thing that Australia needs to do is sort of get a little better at his at his two at his two seamer and his sinker, so he can get a few more brown balls. But other than that, you know, in terms of a pitching mix, I think he's in a really good position where he's got everything he needs, and he just needs to put the pieces in the right places to have a really good year. The problem is, you know, the 94 mile an hour fastball that he was drafted with is now down to 91, 92, uh, whereas Sonny Gray um, is still up in 94, 95, um, and can dial it up to 96. You know, you look at their body types, maybe Sonny Gray's velocity is going to fall off if you're talking Dynasty League. But if you're talking about next year, next year alone, mm-hmm. you know, are you going to go after the 94-mile-an-hour velocity and the more expensive Sonny Gray? Or are you going to maybe you know, wait a couple of rounds and think about Dan Straley, who has the same sort of park effects um, and also has a more refined um, arsenal, actually? Yeah, and the way he pitches really fits well to that park. The one thing that concerns me about Straley, getting back to issues with lefties, you know, he does have a rather pronounced split. His weighted on base average for his career is 335 against lefties, 275 against righties. Uh, the strikeouts are, he really doesn't do much there, and he's got a, his walk rate against lefties is double what it is against righties. So that's, that, that's to me is that, that bit of a concern that comes up is like, Okay, what are you doing? And then when you look at how he's pitching, it's fastball changeup. He barely throws. I mean, he throws more changeups than he does uh, breaking balls. The breaking ball is his third pitch when he's when he's attacking lefties. So we'll see how that grows with him. But in the same kind of thing, when I see that kind of pronounced split, I, I'm a bit worried. It kind of limits what his ceiling could be to me. But I do like Straley. I just I don't. I'm not in love with him. I like. I'm not. Not bromance with with Sonny Gray, but not too far from it. Uh, well, you know, I think that you know, we, you all, we also know the backstory for Straley. Um, you know, I wrote about how he'd been he tried seventeen different change of whips, uh, yes. grips, <laughs> and uh, even in season, he told me that something clicked for him with the change up. You know, in the second half of the season, um, and it was in Toronto or something. He found he found uh, he sort of refound the change up, and I think when I look. I, I'm a, you know, he doesn't have enough of a track record where I'm gonna um, put too much stock in the lefty-righty splits in terms of uh, the results of a plate appearance. But I will, you know, look at his lefty-righty peripherals on his pitches. And then one thing I do notice is that he, his homer rate is pretty high on the changeup. Um, you know, he still gets pretty good whiffs against lefties. He still gets a lot of ground balls on the changeup for against lefties. But the homer rate on the changeup against lefties. There's something there. I mean, it's uh, it definitely pops out at you. So, um, you know, if there's like a little more tinkering you can do, it. I mean, it's it's the tinkerer, right? It's the tinkerer. It's the guy who you know maybe doesn't have the the natural stuff, um, but spends a lot of time tinkering and has you know has spent a lot of thought going into each of his pitches, or a little bit more of the grip it and rip it guy with Sonny Gray, who has you know a little bit more. Um, yeah, a lot more tools, I guess I would say, in terms of it's hard to say that about a pitcher. But, yeah, he has more tools, I guess. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. Uh, the other addition to the pitching staff, Scott Casimir, we mentioned earlier, um, he's now in Oakland. The the park, you, you figured the park effects are going to be nice for him. 
you know, not that Cleveland was terrible, but coming to Oakland certainly is going to help uh, with his fly ball uh, tendencies and whatnot. The only concern I have with Casimir, honestly, is the workload jump. We're talking about a guy that essentially pitched about 65 innings of independent ball in 2012 and then threw about 170 uh, overall professionally last year uh, after being away from the game. Uh, that's my only concern is can he hold up over the course of a full season? And he also never had a walk rate as nice. I mean, he his career best walk rate was last year. Yes. So I mean, that's that's one thing that we forget about. Even you know, vintage Casimir was a lot of strikeouts, a lot of walks, and a lot of homers. So maybe the homers, uh, maybe yeah, I think the park factors are a little bit stronger in Oakland. So maybe the homers a little bit down. And, and by the way, it's not necessarily the park; it's actually the weather. Oakland's the coldest park. Yes, that's it. Uh, but I think he'll, I think he'll walk more guys. Uh, I doubt he makes it through the full season. But I think one of the things that they're betting on with him is, and I think they did it with Cologne too, was, you know, okay, we'll take what you got, you know, when you're in, mm-hmm. and we'll hope you're healthy at the right time. One of the things that kind of stands out, obviously, when he came back last year, it, it took him a little bit of time to get his, to get his legs back underneath him. Uh, you know, especially in his first game, I think he looked good in his first two innings, and, and then I don't think got out of the third inning. You look at his first and second half splits, and he, his first half, looking at a two sixty three batting average, a seven eighty nine OPS, a twenty two percent strike a strikeout rate, and an eight percent walk rate. Fine. Second half, this is where he made a lot of strides, and it kind of flew under the radar. Slugging percentage dropped by a hundred points. Batting average stayed the same. Strikeout rate jumped six percentage points up to 27%. Walk rate dropped to 5.6%. 82 strikeouts, 17 walks. That's huge. I mean, he made some nice growth once he said, okay, I'm back. You got to, you know, everything started coming together. He looked really good down the stretch. And I think that's what Oakland's kind of betting on is, is those numbers. I mean, that second half number, 27% strikeout rate and a 5.6 walk rate. That's better than he ever was in his prime when he was Kid K pitching for the race. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a high variance thing. And, uh, you know, he's kind of borderline for mixed leagues just because of the, the, you know, you have a career year and you're that age and you're likely to be hurt. And, you know, you still only came up with a 404 ERA. So, um, but I think the strikeouts make him mixed league relevant. And the, and the home park will help too, but uh, I have a feeling that other people will be uh, more willing to pay bigger bucks for him than I will. Agreed, agreed. Because again, he comes off that high that high year. Can he get even better? Don't think so. You figure there's going to be a little bit of a step back, but I think he's going to be again one of those guys that gets bid a little more than he should because oh, it's Casbury. He has he still has their name recognition, and then the recency bias. Yeah, I'm, I'm gonna. Let other people take that bid. Speaking of somebody who gets hurt a lot, Coco Crisp, uh, a guy, believe it or not, has had at least 500 plate appearances in each of the past three seasons, but he's been on the DL at least once in each of the three seasons, if not twice. He's that has not played more than 136 games uh, since 2011. So when you look at his overall numbers, the value of him is speed, concern, even though he's had the plate appearances, again, 583, 508, and 584 over the last three years. His stolen base rate has gone from stolen base total, 49, 39, and just 21 last year. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's, he's changing a little bit in his age. Uh, I mean, I've watched a lot of batting practices from him, and he, he is really whooping the ball in batting practice. And you look at the uh, the spray charts, um, and, I, and I kind of did a little bit of research for this piece. Uh, I, I 
his pull rate is high. His two highest pull rates of his career, or two of the, the top three pull rates of his career, come in the last two years. Mm-hmm. And uh, and it's the same for his opposite field. The, the last three years are the worst years of his career in terms of going to the opposite field. So um, he's definitely becoming more of a pull hitter as he ages. He's kind of going uh, hitting for more for power. Um, and I think probably that has something to do with him seeing that his wheels are kind of going a little bit. Um, and, you know, the one last thing uh, that's that's out there also is that his platoon split, um, you know, is getting a little bit worse. I mean, last year uh, he was actually, you know, not very good uh, against uh, lefties. And if you look over his career, he's been a lot better against righties his whole career. So, um you know, I think that with Gentry in the fold, um, every year that, you know, he puts up like a 70 WRC plus against lefties is a year closer to Gentry taking over in full, full platoon. Yeah, definitely a, a possibility. You look at the last year, 22 home runs, definitely a career high, double what he had done the previous season. But you look at Hit Tracker online, Eight of his 22 home runs were just enough home runs, fence scrapers essentially. And a lot of that came when he had that one hot run there for a while where he was really putting that stuff up. Uh, but you know, the home run rate, he's always been a single digit guy, eight, 8.6% over the past five seasons. That factors in the 12.4 that he had last year. So with him, he was a 2020 threat last year. There weren't that many of those guys. I could, perceive him being below 20 for both categories and it's not because he's a phenomenal base dealer Jonah Carey did a great piece on him talked about just you know everything that Chris does in stealing bases phenomenal guy but you know when you get to an age your body starts to let you down a little bit he's 34 turning 35 within the season this is what happens to these guys when they get this age yeah I mean and it's and you can like you said it's been happening for a while and he you know we did a, a stolen base aging curve, but we just aged the actual stat of stolen bases, not, you know, what speedy players do. And, and it, stolen bases fall really quickly. And it's mostly, there's a lot of times when, you know, it's a slugger and they say, you know, we don't want you hurting yourselves on the base pass. Please stop stealing bases. Um, or you see a guy like Michael Bourne who used to steal 60 and 70 dropping fairly quickly to 30, you know. So Crisp is not coming off of a, to- a high peak. I mean, when he was in his younger days, he was stealing 20 and 28 bases. So I think the, the anomaly is that, that 50 year, that 50 stolen base, the 49 that he stole in 2011 and the, you know, the 40 he stole last year, those are way far and above, you know, the, the numbers he used to put up. So yeah, I agree with you, especially if then, you know, Gentry starts stealing some starts against lefties. It just means that even if he is healthy, he's going to lose starts. Um, and, uh, you know, about the just enough thing, maybe the pull thing, maybe he's pulling it straight down the line and, you know, you know, there are shorter porches there and maybe that's where the just enough thing is coming in. But I agree with you. I would, I, you know, even if, even if the new pull happy, uh, Coco Crisp is the new Coco Crisp that we're, you know, that we're the new baseline or whatever, you're still going to regress, um, some of that power back to his career means that means, yeah, 15, 15, 15, 18. You know, and guaranteed missed time. Yeah, that's that's a fact because we all we know that the the best indicator of injuries is previous injuries, and Lord knows Chris has a bunch of them. Uh, wrapping it up, Oakland infield. We already talked about Donaldson. Anything else stand out to you about what they're doing on the infield this year? Well, it's just weird. You know, they got. Uh, I thought you know Kiaspa would be traded uh, when they signed Punto. 
because uh, now they have two kind of high contact, low walk, um, you know, utility guys in Kayaspo and, and, and Punto. Uh, and they have Sogard, who's a, a little bit more the, their traditional, you know, patience guy. Um, probably the best glove of the three into, at second base, at least. Punto has played some short. Um, I mean, there's a lot going on there, and their best prospect is Addison Russell, and they've called Jed Lowry a stopgap uh, shortstop that they're probably, you know, going to keep through his contract and then thank him for his for his services. So there's a lot going on there. Lowry getting hurt in the past. It, it seems like maybe they just want all hands on deck, and they're just going to keep everybody up, and they're going to find some platoon situation at second, and they're going to have a, a you know, they're going to have a lot of infielders or something. Yeah, I mean, they they had like four uh, four second basemen at some point last year. Like Jamal Weeks was buried, and they they got rid of him uh, and bringing Jim Johnson over to in, in their bullpen. Really like we didn't even talk about that, but I love Oakland's bullpen this year. Looking at adding Johnson, uh, who had a good year despite not saving every single game uh, last year. Doolittle adding Gregerson, Cook, Otero. Uh, I really like what they've got going on uh, there in Oakland. It, it, this should be a really solid team. It's going to be a fun division overall uh, because of, of what the Rangers have done to improve themselves, what the Astros have done to improve themselves, what Seattle has done to improve themselves. A lot of money has been spent in the American League West to bring talent over. And uh, as far as fantasy impact between Oakland, we've talked about Oakland and uh, Anaheim now, so there definitely should be room for improvement in Anaheim and, and things uh, different here uh, in Oakland. Any final thoughts? No, uh, I, I look forward to going to another season of uh, games at that terrible stadium, and uh, I'll keep reporting back for you guys. Yeah, my brother, my uh, my youngest brother lives in the area and, and is forced going to those games. So, in his lifetime, he's only been to games at the Astrodome, Tropicana Field, and Oakland, and then we went to a game at San Francisco last time I was in town. Uh, the year they won the World Series, I took him to a game uh, during that season. So that's all he's ever seen uh, at a ballpark. <laughs> so it's 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 quite jaded view. But uh, yeah, he goes to those games and takes my nephew to the games, and I I'm fine. I I love Do- I love the dome. I have never been to Oakland, so I can't speak to how poor that ballpark is. It's one of the eight that I have yet to go to. Oh, it's so cold and so concrete. But uh, all right, let's it's a happy New Year. Let's uh, let's get going. Awesome. Yeah. So we'll, uh, we'll be live again in a couple of days. What two teams are we going to talk about next? Are we going to stay I, in ABC order? Yes. What's next? Braves? The Barves yeah. and the Cardinals? Maybe. Yes, we are good at this writing and thinking. <laughs> Yeah, that stuff. So, yeah, we'll be talking about two more teams. And then if you have any other things, uh, questions uh, that you would like us to preview about that we talked about those previews, use the comment section. Let us know if you want us to focus in on a specific guy. Uh, we just picked six different bullet points for each team to discuss. If there's anything you want us to talk about, just hit up the comment section and let us know. And with that, we're out, and we'll uh, talk to you next time. All right. 